Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we're truly thankful that uh, you have brought us to this place once more. Indeed, uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come into our hearts and uh, continue to um alive and make the words alive to us uh, uh the words that we're going to be studying from the text tonight uh cause them to to penetrate into our hearts cause them to to open our eyes further to open our stopped ears to to help us to uh press in uh to know the master yeshua uh even more uh forgive us of our sins convict us uh where we need to change help us to to press in to grow these are all of the the um some of the purposes that we uh seek to um uh, to uh, to to um to unlock and to do to enact as we engage in the practice of studying and reading the torah lord it's not just an exercise in in um uh, intellectual nutrition, I like to say, but uh, rather um, there's a there should be a deeper purpose behind our Torah study. So, help us, Father, as we uh, embark once again. In fact, for the last time in this study to the Book of Galatians tonight uh, is the planned last final study in this series, and uh, I have been so thankful that I've been able to be with the students for uh, over two years now, Lord, going. Um, through the notes and going through the book and just uh, hitting all the topics and and sharing what's on my heart. Lord, it's been a blessing to me, and I pray that it's been a blessing to the students who've participated with me as well. Thank you for each and every student who has uh, been with me throughout the entire study, whether they joined the live study or not. Um, I thank you for them. I pray that you'll raise them up. I pray that you'll strengthen them, that you'll protect them, that you'll give them a voice in this age, in this time, in this, in this, uh, in the place that they're at. Uh, help them to be an influence uh, to the people around them. Uh, as the people encounter them, uh, let those people encounter the Messiah Yeshua. Uh, and for me as well, Lord, I pray that you'll continue to uh, give me insight into the text. Uh, help me as a teacher. I don't have all the answers, and I thank you for um, uh, the students who've been able to sharpen my understanding of the text. Indeed, uh, I, as the maxim goes, I learn much from my teachers, more from my peers, but most from my students. 
And so I thank you, Lord, for this this uh, opportunity that we've had to study. Be with the students that are with me tonight in the class. Uh, I thank you for the uh, unique place that they um, uh, represent in my uh, uh, in my study and in my uh, fellowship, Lord. Uh, the friendships and 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 uh, insight uh, and and just the fellowship and the uh, the dialogue and the chat, all of that, Lord, is so um, vital to me, and I thank you for it. Uh, we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory for all of these wonderful things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Yes, everyone uh, listening to the sound of my voice, whether this is live or um, pre-recorded, this is the final Galatians class. That's right. We're on week number 93. That's uh, that's just the way the numbers played out. I didn't there's nothing special about the number 93 there. That's just the number of weeks that it took for me to finish uh, going through the Galatians notes, through the commentary that I wrote to the book of Galatians, which uh, fin- final count, at least as of uh, this date, which is, if we date stamp this, this is February 24th, 2018 for most of you. Um turned out to be about 187 printed pages, but I think like 182 uh, written pages if you print out the PDF version for my website. Um, if you uh, were interested in uh, catching um, some of the teachings and you weren't able to, maybe you joined a little late or uh, something like that, head on out to my website at www.tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E, T-O-R-A-H dot com. And uh, right on the homepage, in the top, there's a section where you can click on the link for the Galatians commentary. All of the information is there. The uh, PDF document can be printed, viewed and printed from there. The web version of the study is there. And all of the corresponding audio um, uh, sessions, the podcast that I recorded and uploaded to the iTunes store, they should all be available there. So everything's there that you need. Um, be blessed. Uh, the, the study is there for you. And if you have any questions, um, scroll to the bottom of my website. There's a, a little icon that looks like an envelope. You click on it and shoot me an email if you had questions or comments or corrections or, you know, you want me to clarify something that I uh, mentioned in my notes. Okay. All right, that being said, um, let's jump into the study tonight and look at uh, uh, where we've gone and kind of the, the, see if we can bring this plane to a landing with our study to the book of Galatians tonight. Um, but first, let's jump into a little bit of liturgy. Uh, for those of you who are with me in the live screen, you see I've got the uh, webpage of um, HebrewForChristians.com pulled up, which is one of my favorite websites when it comes to just um, uh, navigating through not only Hebrew, but uh, blessings and liturgy and grammar and and uh, general theology as well. So I think it's an overall uh, well-rounded uh, website. I can recommend it to, to just about everyone I meet, both Jews, Gentiles, believers and unbelievers. I can recommend it to anyone. Um, I think that the, the, the website is, is uh, well put together. Well, we're going to use um, some of their liturgy tonight for our Hebrew section that we like to read. First, let's jump down to, scroll down to the page to the um, blessing for the Torah, the Birkat HaTorah. And this is kind of nice. Uh, It even includes an audio link. I don't know if this would work right now, so I'm not going to click it just yet. But um, besides, it would end up reading all of this Hebrew, and I don't want to, I'm going to read it for you myself. So what we've got is a blessing, basically a blessing for learning Torah or a blessing for studying the Torah. And any and and in uh, any standard Jewish prayer book, 
any standard Siddur that you can pick up at a Judaica store. Uh, this is one of the earlier blessings that you're going to read. It's probably within the first 10 pages that you're going to encounter. So let's read that for a blessing for, uh, for studying Torah tonight. <clears throat> um, what I'll do is I'll jump past the uh, Hebrew and I'll read this English section down here first for all you that are with me in the live class and then I'll go back and read the Hebrew corresponding to that and then there's another blessing that's on this page that we're gonna look at tonight that's gonna correspond with what we're gonna be talking about okay alright so the English of this blessing reads blessed art thou Lord our God King of the universe who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. And then this next uh, section is straight out of the Torah itself. It's the Aaronic benediction that most of you are familiar with. It reads, May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you. And may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. All right. And now let's go back up and read the Hebrew that corresponds with uh, what we just read in the English. Uh, the Hebrew reads, and for those of you who are in the class, we're starting, I don't know if you can see my mouse moving, we're starting up here in the upper uh, right-hand corner. Uh, the Hebrew reads, Baruch atah Adonai Elohinu. Actually, you know what? I think, let me pause for a second. Uh, this might have a uh, interlinear, uh, not that. Um, this might have a, um, this should have a, yeah, here we go, transliterated. I, I forgot that this website, it's keen that, you know, many people can't read the Hebrew script, and and I like people to be able to try and follow along to the best of their ability to what I'm reading. So we've got transliterated Hebrew here, which will help you kind of follow along with what I'm saying in case you can't read the Hebrew. So just to describe what I'm seeing for those of you who aren't with me in the live class briefly, uh, we've got Hebrew on the top row, right, the, the actual block script, the, the script that you're used to seeing, the Hebrew script itself. Immediately below that, we've got a transliterated uh, English, in other words, the transliterated Hebrew using English lettering. So uh, the Latin alphabet has been rendered, uh, the Hebrew has been rendered into Latin alphabet. And then immediately below that, um, we've got the English translation of the word uh, that the Hebrew represents. So kind of a wooden translation. And this looks similar to what you guys are used to seeing when I read, when I jump over into the uh, Apostolic Scriptures New Testament portion. So let's use this. I forgot about that, that this was available. All right. You guys cool with that? I'm cool with that. All right. Let's, so if, this way, if you can read the transliteration, then you can kind of approximate what the Hebrew is saying. So here's what it says in Hebrew. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotah V'tzivanu L'asuk B'divrei Torah Starting here. V'ha'arev na Adonai Eloheinu Et divrei Torah B'finu U'fyot Amcha Beit Yisrael V'nicheh Anachnu V'tzetzeinu V'tzetzei Amcha Beit Yisrael Kulanu Yodei Shmecha now we're down here at the bottom. Velom dei toratecha lishma baruchata Adonai ham lamei Torah la'amo Yisrael. 
All right, let's start near the top of the page here with Blessed Are You, Lord. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asherir Bachar Banu Bechol HaAmin V'Natan Lanu Et Torah To. Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah. And for those of you who attend Messianic congregations, you're probably used to hearing that middle section there chanted by your cantor, your chazan. There's a little um, tune that goes along with that probably chants it just before the Torah reading blessing, something like that. And then the final uh, three lines are lifted straight out of the book of Numbers. This is the Aaronic benediction, the priestly blessing. And it reads in Hebrew, All right. And of course, uh, again, What's nice about this um, version that we're looking at here, for those of you with me in the live class, you can see which Hebrew word corresponds to which uh, English counterpart, uh, you know, right underneath. So I hope you guys enjoy that. All right, let's go back and let's go now to this using the same website, Hebrew for Christians, and pull one more blessing uh, into our liturgy for tonight. Let's go back to prayers. And this time we were borrowing um, the final paragraph out of the blessing known as the Shmone Esre, or as it's, it's, it's a more common name, the Amidah. Shmone Esre, as we already mentioned uh, a few weeks ago or last week, is a Hebrew word that refers to um, 18. Shmone Esre, 8 plus 10. And there were originally 18 blessings in this prayer, uh, but uh, one more got added, the prayer for over the, the, the the blessing. I don't know why they call it blessing, but the blessing over the uh, the the uh, the, the uh, uh, heretics. In other words, the, the Messianic Jews who had come to, begun to spring up in the synagogues at that time. But uh, important for us to to notice as we use this liturgy for tonight is that this is a very ancient prayer. Um, the website I'm using, HebrewForChristians.com, uh, mentions for us that this basic form of the pra- the basic form of this prayer was composed by the 120 men of the Great Assembly in the fifth century B.C.E. Yeah, that's right. According to most history, and, and as far as I can tell, the research of this is accurate. Um, this prayer has been around since before the time of Paul or Yeshua in some form of another. Um, the Talmud mentions it, the Mishnah mentions it. It doesn't list it uh, verbatim. We don't have the wording here mentioned. Um, the prayer itself isn't reproduced in the Mishnah or the Talmud, as far as I can tell. But um, the the verbiage and, and the, the some of it, I think, the early forms of it show up as far as, uh, begin to show up in the Tosefta, uh, which is, you know, the second century, at least, uh, after Yeshua's, so second century A.E., um, A-C-E, whatever you want to call it there. So uh, basically, we're going to borrow tonight for our liturgy. We're going to look at the final, um, the, 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 the the 19th blessing, if you want to call it that number, which is called the Sim Shalom. Sim Shalom stands for uh, create peace. And it's based on uh, the fact that we just read Numbers chapter 6, 24 to 26. Uh, you know, he who makes pe- uh, the Lord, uh, you know, the, the Aaronic benediction, which uh, may the Lord lift up his countenance toward you and grant you peace. So we're going to move right into this theme. All right. Um, and also, when we get to Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, which is in our notes tonight, the final verse that we're studying, um, Paul uses a term, uh, may. Uh, may God uh, grant peace to you, you know, mercy and peace to to those who walk by this rule, and to all Israel. And the verbiage "all Israel" um, 
the Israel of God and things like that, that verbiage is very similar to what we're going to be reading about here in this 19th blessing of the Amidah. So it's quite plausible that Paul may have been recalling some of the words of the Amidah when he penned his final benediction in the book of Galatians. That's at least the traditional understanding. Many Christians agree, Christian commentators agree that there's a strong possibility that Paul was recalling some of the words of this very prayer that we're reading right now, and he pulled it into his letter to the book of Galatians. I find that kind of interesting myself. So let's read this blessing out of the um, Amidah. Let me do what I did in the previous one. I'll jump straight down to the translation, read that first, and then I'll go back up and entertain you with the Hebrew. All right, so the translation of this blessing reads, Grant peace, goodness, blessing, grace, kindness, and compassion upon us and upon all of your people, Israel. See, notice those phrases, upon all your people, Israel. Bless us, our Father, for all of us as one with the light of... I'm sorry, let me start that line again. Bless us, our Father, all of us as one, with the light of your face. Um, recalling the Numbers passage there. For with the light of your face you gave to us, Adonai, our God, the Torah of life and love of kindness, righteousness, blessing, compassion, life, and peace. And may it be good in your eyes to bless your people Israel at every time and at every hour with your peace. Blessed are you, Lord, who blesses his people Israel with peace. And then there's a final blessing um, that that we tag to the end of this. Uh, it's part of this. Actually, there's a, there's a longer part in the, if you have a liturgy itself, if you have a sedure yourself, there's this big longer paragraph that doesn't get uh, reproduced here for the Hebrew for Christians website. Instead, it jumps all the way down to the very end of that longer paragraph, and that's what we're going to read tonight. And the translation basically says, may he who makes peace in his high places, this is this is kind of lifted from the, there's a passage out of the book of Job uh, uh, that uses similar language as to this liturgy here. May he who makes peace in his high places make peace for us and for all Israel and say ye amen. And it's that final part there that's probably similar to Paul's uh, final benediction in the book of Galatians. All right, let's go back and read the uh, Hebrew of that as well. Again, I'll use the transliterated, I'm sorry, I'll use the, um, uh, yes, the, the, what translated Hebrew that you all can see there. So that way, if you'd like to try and follow along with me, that's great. Okay. And of course, this is only for those of you who are in the live class. If you're just listening to this audio podcast from iTunes store or from my website, then, uh, this, none of this is relevant to you. So this is just for, this is just for those of you who are in the live class with me. All right. The Hebrew reads starting up here in the upper right corner again. Sim shalom tova uvachachin vachesev rachamim aleinu vaokho yisrael amecha. Next line here. Barachinu avinu kulanu Bishlomecha. And then the final line, Baruchata Adonai Hamvarek et Amo Yisrael Bashalom. And now let's tack on that final uh, blessing that was uh, borrowed from the book of uh, Job there. And it's the part that the, the cantor would usually chant uh, again. 
This one reads, Ose shalom bimromav hu yaase shalom aleinu v'alko Yisrael bimru. Amen. All right, that's our liturgy for the Hebrew. Let's turn now to the book of Galatians and entertain some liturgy from the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures, the B'rit Uh Galatians chapter 6, we're reading our final, um, uh, I think it's the final section, the, the final warning and benedictions, starting in verse 11, and we'll read all the way down to verse 18, which is the final few verses. It reads this way out of the ESV, Verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Verse 13, for those, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14, but, but, um, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And verse 16, and this is the one we're going to study tonight. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. Yeah, sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like that Amidah. Uh, passage we just read. Verse 17, from now on let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. All right, let's go back and read the uh, uh, Greek of that from the SPLGNT. Let's use the interlinear chapters so that you can see the um, uh, English words and the uh, transliteration is right up here if you'd like to try and follow along with me in the Greek as well. Greek reads left to right just like English, English so in my eyes it's a little easier for me to follow along. Let's scroll down to starting in verse 11. We'll start right there in Greek, which reads, Idete pelikois humen gramasun egrapsa te eme cheiri. That was verse 11. Starting in verse 12, Hasoi thelusin Yuprasso Pesai in Saraki Hutoi Anakatsusin Humas Peritimnestai Naman I'm sorry Manan Hina Totstaro Tu Christu Yesu Me di O Kuntai Verse thirteen Ude Gar Hoi Nomenoi Autoi Naman Fulasusin Alathalusin Humas Peritimnestai Hina in te humetera, sarki kalkesantai. Verse 14. Emoi de me genoitoi kalkasthai, e me in to stauro tu curio hemon Jesu Christu, di hu emoi kosmos stauruntai, kago cosmo. Verse 15, Ute gar pertome ti estin ute akrobustia ala kaine katesis. And the final few verses, starting at verse 16, Kai hasoi to kanani tuto stoikesusun, irene ep autus kai eleas, kai epiton israel tu theu. And that's the verse we're going to look at tonight. And, and we're basically we're centering on this final few words 
um, one, two, three, four, five, so the last six words uh, of this uh, verse here, this, and upon the Israel of God, kai epiton Israel to theu. What does Paul mean by this phrase? Why did he even add this to the end? Why didn't he just leave it the way the verse was? Why did it cause so much? Um, we're going to find out that there's quite a, different, a few different ways to understand this final phrase here. Uh, continuing with our liturgy, verse uh, 17:2, loi pu ka pus moi medes paracheto ego garta stigmata tu Jesu ento somati mu bastadzo. And the last verse, he chars tu kuriu hemon Jesu Christu metatu penumatas hemon adelfoi. Amen. All right, and that'll be our liturgy for tonight. Let's jump back over to the English. Okay, let's look at my commentary and see where we are at and see where we're going. Uh, those of you who are with me in the live class can see that I've got my page pulled up on, and we're parked on page 182 at the very top. That's where we left off last week. We just made read this quote from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, and just to back up just a bit to, to say why we read that and move forward. We read this passage out of the book of Romans because basically um, Paul is trying to explain in the book of Romans uh, a book where he slows down his his, his uh, teaching a bit. He explains in the book of Romans how that um, God has this grand plan for Israel as a people, and that he's explaining, Paul's now explaining, that um, as far as the Gentiles who've been grafted into Israel are concerned, um, there's, there's, there's a place for Israel, and there's a place for the Gentiles, uh, in relation to Israel, and he's starting to flesh out this relationship that the Gentile nations have to the people known as Israel. Where exactly do the Gentiles who have placed their faith in Messiah, how do they fit into the existing program that God has already outlined with the nation of Israel? Where do the Gentiles fit in? And the book of Romans, starting in chapter 9 and working, building up to chapter 11 is this this section where Paul focuses intensely on the relationship between these two peoples. And um, we see that this gives us uh, um, a lot of theology to work from if we read through those three chapters, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. But we're not in Romans at the moment. We're actually in Galatians, which was written earlier than Romans and with far fewer uh, pen strokes. Paul doesn't even give us the benefit of explaining what he's what he means by the Israel of God in Galatians 6:16. 6, so we only borrowed the notes from the book of Romans to kind of give us the 21st century Christians a background perhaps to better understanding what Paul means. But other than that, um, my suggestion is that when you read through the book of Galatians and you encounter Galatians 6:16, 6, don't try to get too hung up on what Paul's trying to say there by the Israel of God. Just take kind of take it at face value. Israel of God means the Israel that God chose. In other words, the Israel, the people of God that God recognizes by the name Israel. And in its simplistic form, Paul doesn't probably mean much more than that. But we know that when he writes the book of Romans, he's going to go back and explain a bit more um, the, 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 the theology of how uh, the Gentiles fit in to the people of God eschatologically, presently and eschatologically. How do the Gentiles fit into this program that God has already created with Israel? All right, so it's with that we kind of we kind of uh, wet our appetite with that teaser last week um, that we're going to move into this idea of of I'm going to explain it here in my commentary what I think Paul perhaps could be hinting at 
in this phrase, the Israel of God, in uh, Galatians here. But I want you to keep in mind that as far as the book of Galatians is con- itself is concerned, the recipients of the letter to the book of Galatians didn't have the book of Romans uh, at their disposal. Obviously, it hadn't been written yet, and they were in a different region altogether, right? One is Galatia, one's Rome. So, um, we have the advantage, we as 21st century Christians, we have the advantage of being able to compare Paul's letter to the book of Romans with the book of Galatians and seek uh, to gain a better understanding of what Paul means by this phrase, Israel of God, here in the book of Galatians. But to be fair to the text, the readers to the book of Galatians, since they didn't have the book of Romans to work from, they probably didn't have to have a lot of theological uh, explaining to do uh, like we're going to be doing in my text. So you got in my notes here. So you guys kind of following along what I'm saying? I'm trying not to be too anachronistic, uh, out of place and time is what that kind of word anachronistic means. I'm trying not to be too anachronistic in my uh, explanation of this phrase, Israel of God. All right. That being said, with that as my disclaimer, let's go into my commentary. We're near the top of page 182, and we've only got basically two pages to cover. So it'll be a short study. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through most of my notes because they're kind of self-explanatory. And then I'll go back and explain some of the uh, highlights of what I think I want you guys to walk away with. Okay, here we go. Starting from my notes, here's what I have to say. As painful as it was for Paul to admit the truth of the gospel at times, nevertheless, he must not compromise on truth. And here's what I think he's trying to get across. Hashem extends genuine and lasting covenant status only to those who find favor with God through Yeshua, the Holy One of Israel. I say painful here because surely Paul loved and cared for his fellow Israelites, right? Even if in spiritual blindness, no doubt, they rejected the promised Messiah spoken about in their very scriptures. And we can pause and look back just for a moment at the uh, the Galatian, I'm sorry, at the uh, Romans 9 passage, and we can see Paul expressing his pain in the first few verses. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness to the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He goes on to even express that if he could, that he would wish for himself to be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, if Paul could make a a swap with God and say, hey, take my redemption and trade it for uh, collective Israel, if they can be saved and I would be lost, I would do it. Right, and that that of course sounds strikingly familiar to what even Moshe himself said um, in the uh, Torah, uh, speaking of the children of Israel. There, you know, hey God, if 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 you can save them and take me, then let's make the trade. Of course, neither one of those cases ever happened, but at least it expresses the the heart of of both Moshe and Paul. Let's keep reading. So. Paul has great pains for unbelieving national Israel here, right? Even though they rejected Israel, even though they rejected the the Messiah of Israel. Paul may have had harsh words for the influencers in this letter, right? We know in in, uh, Galatians chapter 1, he says that he wishes that anyone 
who preaches another gospel to be anathema in the Greek, to be accursed. Let them be accursed if they preach another gospel, he says in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he actually refers to the influencers as pseudodelphoi in the Greek, which is false brethren that he describes as, as those who snuck into the Galatian communities unawares to spy out the liberty that we believers have in Messiah. So Paul has had some harsh words for the Galatian influencers. He even went on to wish that they would emasculate themselves right? If you're going to cut off a little, why don't you just go ahead and cut off all of it? If you guys understand the illusion, what I'm, what I'm talking about there. So Paul has some very harsh words to say, but I say in my notes here, that doesn't mean that he counted them among his enemies. I don't think he did. He knows that, that if we can, if we can, if we can assume that the Judaizers, the influencers or unsaved Jews who were just towing the standard Jewish party line of their day that taught, you know, covenantal nomism, um, a, a kind of merit theology, if you want to describe it in that language. I don't I like to use that language when it comes to describing what they believe, but if you want to use that, that's fine. Um, a kind of a works righteousness, if you want to describe it that, some form of uh, righteousness that was tied to your identity and your good works, uh, things like that, your Torah observance. Paul still, uh, I don't think he would have viewed them as his enemies, to be sure. He must have included them among those he spoke about when he coined his famous words from Romans 9, 3 above, right? When he talks about, Lord, if at all possible, if you can trade my redemption for their salvation, well, then this sentiment that he expressed later on in the book of Romans is is likely present here in the book of Galatians, even though we don't read about it. In other words, he would say to the influencers, look, you guys, I don't hate you. I don't hate you. I wish that you would come to a knowledge of the truth, just like I have. And if there was something I could do uh, to, to trade uh, perhaps even my life for yours when it comes to redemption, I would. But... Um, I can't, so all I can do is plead for you to understand what I'm trying to say. This, is, I think, is what the heart of Paul would be. All right, so uh, having said that, I say in my notes here, we could stand to learn a valuable lesson from Paul's feelings about those fellow Jews who were constantly at odds with his theology, right? Everywhere Paul went, he had the unbelieving Jews um, seemingly opposing him. I mean, you read about it throughout the book of Acts. Paul went into the synagogues, preached to the unbelieving Jews there, as well as the Jew, the Gentiles who were allowed to attend either synagogues, like the God-fearers, or those Gentiles who were allowed to, to peer in from the outside, kind of sit in the outer circle. Nevertheless, um, uh, the unbelieving Jews quite often stirred up riots and and factions and and uh, fights and 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 disagreements and things like that. And we read about that in the Book of Acts. But still, um, uh, Paul, nevertheless, uh, it, it pained him to see his fellow countrymen react the way that they did against the theology that he was teaching. Um, they may have thought, I, I say in my notes here, they may have thought he was an enemy of Israel and ultimately of God, right? That's why they were out to kill him. That's why they took vows and oaths not to eat or, or drink or sleep until the, Paul was dead. Um, you can read about that in the book of Acts as well. But Paul, I say, regarded them as worthy of genuine concern and prayer nonetheless. Indeed, Paul's going to remind us also as the, quote, Israel of God, that our war is not against flesh and blood. Uh, blood. We're going to read this quote from Ephesians. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's Ephesians 6.12 rendered from the KJV. So the point I'm trying to make is that 
If you, if you as a Christian think that your enemy is the unsaved Jews, then think again. Paul, I don't think, would say that, that they, they are his enemies. It's not flesh and blood. Rather, the unsaved Jews are merely pawns in a larger game uh, between Satan and God himself. Of course, we know it's not an equal battle. It's not a dualistic battle. It's not that Satan is as equal in power to God. There's no contest. Satan is obviously defeated. He's underneath the feet of Yeshua. Yet, Satan has control over um, the eyes and the hearts and the minds of those who would oppose the gospel. This would include unsaved Jews. Therefore, as Paul battles, does spiritual battle against the adversary, he's going to naturally encounter humans who are under the control of their old nature. This would include the unsaved Jews in his day. So, he, that being said, he knows that his battle is not against them. His battle is against Satan himself. And uh, he's fighting God's battle, and he knows that he's going to win because, in fact, the war has already been won in Messiah. Amen? Amen. So, don't get too hung up against your uh, the, the, the human people that oppose you. Pray for them. Um, do what you can to counter their argumentation. Uh, uh, you know, do what you can to reason with them if you, if you have the opportunity. But ultimately, uh, they're not your enemy. It's not against flesh and blood. All right, it's against the the rulers of the darkness. It's it's a, it's a larger cosmic battle battle that's taking place in the in the invisible realm. That we that's that's the real battle there, people. And that's why, as I say, kind of in a side note, it's so important for us to be aware of the spiritual warfare that's going on around us as believers. Don't get hung up on the unbelieving opposition that you're going to encounter on a day-to-day basis as you try to share the gospel with the people that you meet. Don't get too too stunted by their arguments and by their disagreements and by their opposition and by their 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 um their counter uh, missionary tactics and things like that. Your battle is not against them. Your battle is against the, the principalities in the heavenlies. And so for that reason, you need stronger armor than just mere human intellect and human reasoning and human philosophy and 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 psychology and all of that. You need stronger guns than that. So don't focus too much on the humans, right? Paul's not going to do it. Why should you? So we see that, as I say in my notes, we see that those to whom Paul extends his blessing in 6.16 are the genuine faithful remnant called out from among both Jews and Gentiles to bear the name of Yeshua, the true Messiah, for the purpose of bringing glory to God's name and honor to his kingdom as it is represented here on earth. Again, you can see the, there's that dimension of the spiritual in view. Once we join uh, the, the ranks of God's kingdom, we join an army that has supernatural capabilities. And indeed, we are um, instruments in God's battle. This, this this cosmic uh, uh, supernatural battle that, that God is engaged in with the adversary himself. Again, don't hear me saying that, that it's a battle of equal opponents, God, Satan being the equal opponents, opposing one another in some form, form of... of um, of you know or uh, uh, ancient um, e- uh, you know Eastern mystic, mystic uh, dualism or something like that, where you have two equal powers opposing one another, you know Yin versus Yang or something like that. That's not it at all. I I don't believe that dualism itself is is a biblical concept. God is not equal in power to Satan and vice versa. Satan is far less powerful than God. Obviously, Satan is already defeated. If God wanted to, he could think Satan out of existence. 
Right. So um, uh, we have joined a battle in the, in the heavenlies in which we have spiritual weapons so that we can pull down these these strongholds in in the in the uh, heavenlies. And this is the battle that we are engaged in, and it's for that reason that we need to have that perspective as we're working through these types of issues, the opposition that we're going to be uh, encountering, and things like that. So um, we represent God's kingdom here on earth. And so, therefore, we've got the adversary who's not too happy with the message that we are bringing. They, the, 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 the people that are a part of this kingdom of God, I say in my commentary, they are those who have crucified the flesh with its old passions and volitions and walk not by ethnic identity and Torah social status, right? Um, Torah social status, like we had in the, in the first century. But by the power of the Ruach Kodesh, the power of the Holy Spirit, these are those who have this 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 duty to 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 fight God's battles along with God Himself. Of course, God is the one fighting, but we are the ones that are co-partnering with God in this battle. We are the ones that are described in Paul's writings here. Um, we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the Torah written on our heart, not just a Torah as a social status. This is the Israel of God that Paul is recognizing uh, in his letters. This is the 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 Israel within Israel that we're going to talk about in a moment here. This is whom Paul identifies with and for whom he poured his heart out to in this great letter to the book of Galatians. So um, as I keep reading in my commentary, I want to read this part first so that it gets onto the audio, and then I'll go back and explain uh, the parts that I think we need to uh, latch onto. I say in my notes, bottom, we're near the bottom of the page, therefore, in the mystery of ecclesiology, this fancy word ecclesiology has to do with um, the, the, the people groups of God, um, uh, it comes from the Greek word uh, ekklesia, um, which has to do with uh, the people of God, those who are called out by God, meaning uh, either the body of believers or or nation of Israel or something like that. That's what the word ecclesiology refers to. So in the mystery of the people of God, the study of the people of God, that's what the word ecclesiology refers to, we must understand by now, and listen up very clear, uh, very carefully because I'm going to explain this here in a moment. But I want you to listen up because it, for some of you this is going to go over your head if you don't catch it. We must understand by now that Israel exists on two levels simultaneously. We have Israel according to the flesh and we have Israel according to the spirit. And we're going to explain here in a moment how these two work together. Israel according to the flesh has been promised temporal, this world blessings if she will remain faithful to God and obedient to the written Torah given at Sinai. By comparison, Israel according to the Spirit has been promised eternal world to come blessings if she will remain faithful to God and obedient to the living Torah, Yeshua the Messiah. Do you notice the comparison? And a little bit of a contrast as well, but mainly just a comparison. I go on to say this. The two Israels are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And this is a point I'm going to elaborate on here in a moment. Indeed, God loves greater Israel as well as remnant Israel. Remember a few weeks back, I described Israel as this circle, and I described remnant Israel as this smaller circle inside of a larger circle. We're going to revisit that, uh, that, that description here in a moment as well. So 
God loves greater Israel as well as remnant Israel, which actually exists within greater Israel, right? A smaller circle within a larger circle. But they do represent, I say, two biblical teachings of righteousness that are not necessarily equal to one another. And that's, that's, that's where we have to, we have to balance our understanding of the comparison as well as the contrast. We have to keep both of those concepts in view when we're studying this, uh, uh, idea of Israel. Let's keep reading my notes here. So, they do represent two biblical teachings of righteousness that are not necessarily equal to one another. One earthly and one heavenly, one temporal and one eternal. We're at the top of page 183, the last page in my notes. So, um, notice the comparison and contrast that's going on. We've got earthly, we've got heavenly, we've got temporal, we've got eternal. I go on to say this in my notes. It's not a bad thing to go from being a stone-cold pagan worshiping idols to becoming an Israelite according to the flesh who pursues God and his Torah. Let me stop and, and elaborate just for a split second. Consider the position that the influencers, right, the unsaved Jews in Paul's letter here, consider the position that they're offering to the Gentiles who are seeking um, uh, inclusion into Israel of that day. We talked about this last week as well. Perhaps the message of the influencers or the Judaizers was that we, Israel, can offer you, Gentiles, a place in in our blessings, a place in our inheritance, a place in our family. And if you would just convert, change your ethnic status from Gentile to Jew, right? Get circumcised if you're male, physically circumcised. Then you too, you Gentiles, I'm speaking as if I'm one of the Judaizers or the influencers, then you too, you Gentiles, can enjoy what we understand to be the blessings that are reserved exclusively for the uh, elect known as the Israel, Israel, the people of God, the Israel of God, the people of God, the circumcised, the circumcision, and those blessings would include everything that's spelled out in the Torah for covenant members, covenant keepers, uh, those who maintain their right standing in the righteous community, right, not thumbing their nose at God's commandment, not not practicing gross idolatry, not not wandering off into disobedience, and not getting yourself in a position where you're cut off by God because of your your uh, hard heart and your your disobedience, all of the all of the warnings that are spelled out in the Torah uh, against Israel if they fail to keep their place in the covenant. All right. So, um, in, in a word, uh, a national Israel of Paul's day believed, as they still do believe today, that the blessings are reserved primarily and exclusively for national Israel. And those blessings include not just this world blessings, you know, like blessings in your finances, in your family, in your business, in your in your health and things like that. But but uh, more importantly, the Torah uh, reserves blessings in the age to come. In other words, next world blessings, the blessings in what we call the Olam Haba, the age to come, uh, what Judaism calls the age to come, the next life. In other words, after you die, there is a retirement package that's awaiting you if you will also stay, become righteous, be righteous, be found righteous, and stay righteous in God's eyes. And God will bless you with a blessing in the world to come, the age to come. So this is basically the incentive, I think, that the unbelieving Jews were offering, that the national Jews, they wouldn't call themselves unbelieving Jews. That's just a term that I'm anachronistically applying using my messianic uh, 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 insight, as you understand, right? Unbelieving in the sense of unbelieving of Yeshua. 
they of course wouldn't label themselves that way. But the point I'm trying to make is that from their perspective, and and you kind of have to agree with this, if you had to choose be between being a stone cold um, pagan in Paul's day, worshiping idols, to versus becoming a proselyte who could now at least begin to worship the one true God and to begin to walk in his Torah, right? Let's not even bring Yeshua into the picture for a split second. Wouldn't that be a better position to be in? Wouldn't you agree? Right? I think I think everyone listening to the sound of my voice would agree that if you had to choose between being a stone-cold pagan on the one hand and being at least a, a monotheistic Israelite on the other hand, that the monotheistic Israelite is the better of the two positions to be in. All right. After all, I say in my notes, that is indeed a step in the right direction, right? Even Paul would agree with that. So you kind of can understand why perhaps even the believing Pharisees in Acts chapter 15 around verse 5 thought, you know, it's not such a bad idea to get these, and I'm I'm using air quotes with my fingers, these stone-cold pagans who are turning to God, right? At least they're turning away from their idolatry and they're demonstrating a desire to understand God and to know him more and to uh, study Torah and to be uh, uh, counted among the righteous. Let's, 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 why not, why not allow them to become Jews, legally recognized Jews? Why not let them go through the proselyte ceremony? take on legal Jewish status, and get Torah. I mean, what's the big deal? What's the harm in all of that? At least they're not um, um, stone-cold pagan uh, uh, Gentiles anymore, right? At least they're they're in a better place uh, uh, socially, right? Right? So you can kind of begin to sympathize with maybe the position that some of the um, religious Jews in Paul's day to include the religious uh, believing Pharisees that were mentioned in that passage out of Acts 15.5 when it comes to the um, option of allowing Gentiles to, to convert and become Jewish. Right. So why does Paul take a hardline stance against the conversion policy? Well, that's kind of what we're working through as we work through the book of Galatians here. All right, and that is with that concept that I turn to next in my next statement here. Here's what I have to say in my notes. Even after saying that indeed it is a step in the right direction, right, for a stone cold pagan to go from that from his paganism at least towards the monotheism of national Israel, even though that's true, I go on to say in my notes here, and this is important for us to understand within the scope of this uh, of this concept of earthly and heavenly, temporal and eternal. Paul would have us to understand that one need not even convert to Jewish status in order to get oriented in the right direction. That's the big key. Just set your eyes on the cross of Calvary and you'll find, quote, joy unspeakable and full of glory, end quote. That's, of course, related to uh, the verse that we read. If you look at footnote number 175, uh, taken from 1 Peter 1, 8, uh, rendered out of the KJV. I think there's even a, a song I seem to remember growing up as a Baptist that there was a song uh, related to that uh, verse there. So let's keep reading my commentary. I've got probably 10 minutes left in the in the notes here, um, and I want to make sure I hit all the highlights. I go on to say in my final paragraph here in my uh, commentary, and yet those who choose to associate with Israel according to the flesh without also appropriating genuine faith in the quintessential Israelite from Nazareth, from Nazareth, uh, Nazareth, 
we'll find, all right, these would be the unbelieving Jews, the Judaizers, those who don't profess faith in Messiah. These are the ones I'm describing, right? These are the ones that Paul is also uh, has a heartfelt plea for, but yet realizes that they are going to oppose him uh, for the moment. These people, right, they're going to find that their this world blessings will end when life expires for them. That's the bad news. That's the bad news about being just a national Jew. That's the bad news that awaits a Gentile who converts from his stone-cold paganism to become a mon- becoming a monotheistic national Jew, yet not a Messianic Jew. Understand what I mean there? He's going to find that what awaits him on the other side of the grave is not going to be God, at least not in the positive sense of the word. He's not going to end up, I say in my notes, it may not end up being God who will be waiting for them on the other side of the grave if you catch my drift. This, of course, is bad news. Only those um, who have invested in the world-to-come blessings via genuine faith in Mashiach will be able to enjoy blessings both in this world and in the world to come. Understand what I mean there? All right. And with that, I have one final question to pose for those of you who've been following my Galatian study this far. You've made it this far. Here's my last question for you. Having said all of that, knowing that there are two Israels that exist simultaneously on two different levels, but yet simultaneously, which Israel of God do you want to belong to? All right. Let's go back now and unpack uh, some of the uh, meat of what I had to say in this final um, look at Galatians 6.16. Let's turn now real quickly to the um, uh, little uh, teaching that I put together uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago actually, and I, I revisited it last week. It's a, it's, a, it's a little chart that doesn't show up in my Galatians notes, and maybe in a future rendering of my Galatians commentary it'll show up there, but for now it doesn't, so just listen up. It's basically a list of terminology where I've got two tables running, uh, two columns that are running next to each other. And on the left column, um, I've got words like temporal, natural, flesh, old man, external, earthly, outwardly, physical. And on the right column of this table, I've got words like eternal, spiritual, spirit, new man, internal, heavenly, inwardly, spiritual. And basically, here's what I uh, put in this little table, and this is this is why I'm uh, uh, how this is related to our uh, Galatians notes for tonight, particularly understanding this phrase Israel of God. Looking at the table above, we can instantly see that some of the terms represent comparison, and some represent contrast. Right? Germane to our understanding, however, is to notice that in point of fact, a good number of important biblical concepts are actually conveyed in both temporal and eternal aspects at the same time. The Bible recognizes both temporal-slash-physical realities and actions, as well as eternal-slash-spiritual realities and motivations. Right? We've got both of those that are in play uh, as we read through our Bibles. I'm going to single out a sampling for our review, and then I've got a bullet point of listing of about a dozen. I mentioned covenant membership, love for God, love for each other, salvation, life and death, blessings and curses, food and drink, clothing, righteousness, Jewish identity, identity of Israel, both national Israel versus remnant Israel, present Jerusalem versus Jerusalem above, etc. Then we've got land of promise, circumcision, and in brackets, I've got uh, 
I've got as well as other organs, parts of the human body, other organs and parts of the body, right? You know, circumcision meaning not just circumcision of the male um, reproductive organ, but uh, the Bible talks about circumcision of the heart, circumcision of the ears, uh, things like that. Other verbiage where circumcision and another body part, something like that. And then the uh, bullet points include Torah observance and good works in general. This is just a smattering of, obviously, there's more that could be looked at. But the point I'm trying to get across as we move towards um, this understanding of Israel, uh, the Israel of God is that everything on the bulleted list, as far as I can understand, everything in the bulleted list above has a temporal slash physical as well as a corresponding eternal slash spiritual counterpart to it. And right in the middle of this list of the of this um, little um, table that we're describing here, this uh, illustration, I have this this part kind of bolded for you. Is I say that the way to understand the overarching message of the Bible, in my opinion, is to remind yourself that at least for most of the comparisons, perhaps maybe not some of the contrasts, but at least for most of the comparisons. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that from God's va- eternal vantage point, both of these um, uh, aspects, both the temporal as well as the physical, both of them working in tandem, produce the optimal effect and outcome. And again, that's true for most of the comparisons, but perhaps not for some of the contrasts. Right, And so I, I, I go on to say uh, in closing in that for this particular illustration, Thus, temporal things in life should eventually graduate towards eternal things without necessarily sacrificing the temporal things themselves. Make sense? It is basically a good versus better principle that I'm trying to explain here. And I give one example. For instance, to have physical life is good, right? Death is never good. But to have the hope of eternal life along with physical life is better. So good versus better. We don't have to look at it as a, as a sharp contrast all the time of, of bad versus good. Um, so that being the case, let's turn now to another illustration that we used last week or the week prior. This is borrowed once again from the Hebrew for Christians website. And basically, for those of you who are not with me in the live class, what we're seeing is these two circles that are overlapping with one another. This is kind of a standard Venn diagram that we talked about. Uh, Again, keep keep like, for instance, the MasterCard logo in your mind where we got the two uh, circles, the red circle on the left of the MasterCard logo, the yellow circle or kind of the, the gold golden circle on the right of the MasterCard logo and, and when they inter when they overlap with one another they create this slice this 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 section in the middle where they overlap in the uh, MasterCard logo it's orange so we got the red and the yellow combined to form the orange in the middle well in this little Venn diagram that's what we call a Venn diagram where we got circles overlapping one another that that uh, help us to understand uh, comparisons and contrasts of different concepts so let me describe this for you and explain it as best as I can succinctly uh, for our understanding of this phrase, uh, Israel of God, perhaps the way that Paul might have been using it. He didn't, of course, give us the benefit of explaining it in the book of Galatians because this phrase, Israel of God, only shows up here in the book of Galatians. Uh, it, uh, and he only mentions the word Israel once. He doesn't even flesh out what he means by that. You know, uh, going back to the English, we look again. He says, uh, and for all those who walk by this rule, of course, we explained last week that it's probably best 
to understand by context uh, that the phrase, this rule that he's referring to in the first clause of verse 16 is a reference to the rule of neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And of course, we know that that uh, concept of, of the equality of Jew and Gentile in Messiah as new creations is a central theme in Paul's letters. We find it here in the book of Galatians a few different times. Um, you know, this concept of neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, that's found in other letters, the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, uh, I think uh, Corinthians uh, has some of those as well, as well as I think the book of Colossians. So um, this this idea of the equality of Jew and Gentile in God's eyes as they find themselves in Messiah, meaning they're both equal um, covenant members uh, if they are in Messiah, um, this is a very important concept to Paul. And so this is a rule that he's explaining that um, is a rule that allows the peace and the mercy of God to be extended to them. And this instantly creates some sort of segregation away from a different group, meaning if the peace and mercy is upon them and exclusive them, then by comparison or contrast, the peace and mercy must not be uh, on the other group that he is contrasting or comparing uh, the smaller group with. You guys understand the logic there. So it is with the context of that that he says, and upon the Israel of God. And of course, a lot of ink is spilled on this simple word, and, in the English, the conjunction and, in the Greek, it's chi. Uh, what does Paul mean by and upon the Israel of God? Does he mean also the Israel of God? Does he mean that is the Israel of God? Does he mean uh, but the Israel of God? Is you know, uh, Depending on which, uh, the way you understand this simple con- uh, this simple. Um, 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 uh, conjunction here, the word and, uh, your theology is going to be either um, uh, a description of more of a bilateral ecclesiology or a unilateral ecclesiology. Now, what do I mean by these fancy terms? All right, let's use our chart to explain. Basically, when we're talking about identifying what people call the church today, right? Who is the church? Um, those who hold to what's known as a bilateral ecclesiology, the word bi in the phrase bilateral, the bi, refers to two, right? As in bicycle, things like that. Um, bilateral ecclesiology basically describes the church as the people of God, the genuine people of God, as compared to, in other words, contrasted to Israel is the people of God. In other words, they are separate from one another. The church and the Israel are separate identities. They are separate entities. They do not overlap in any fashion or anything like that. To use um, uh, the uh, circles, the Venn diagrams, or things like that, um, the Hebrew for Christians website just basically uh, draws two separate circles. One Israel called the ch- one circle called Israel on the left and another circle called the church on the right and there's no overlapping the church is actually a new spiritual entity with a distinct purpose and identity and the covenants and promises of ethnic israel are not transferred to the church this is basically what we call separation theology um, something that's similar to that is replacement theology uh, where perhaps the church was actually 
Israel in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, the church has replaced Israel. So in other words, the church was born out of Israel, and the covenants and promises that were spelled out to Israel in the Old Testament have actually been transferred to the church because, the Gentile church, because of her faith in Messiah, and therefore the church comes out of Israel, um, and Jews who want to belong to the church actually must convert to become Christians if they wish to enjoy the current blessings of God. This is replacement theology. So in both of these cases, whether it's replacement theology or separation theology, the church and Israel are distinct from one another. That's essentially bilateral ecclesiology. And if that's what Paul means by, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace be upon them, so the them describes perhaps maybe uh, the church is what bilateral ecclesiology would, how they would interpret this verse. As for all who walk by this rule, peace be upon them. So verse 15 and the first clause of verse 16, in the bilateral ecclesiology view, believes that all who walk by this rule are the church, the, the Gentile Christians and the Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus and left national Israel to join the church. In other words, they left, they crossed no man's land, that space in between the two circles that don't overlap. And they have joined the church, the true Israel, according to replacement theology, or just the, the, the new Israel or, you know, the Israel, the, the church, they don't even have to use the term Israel. Just, we're not Israel, we're the church. So something to that effect. That's bilateral ecclesiology. And therefore, the first clause of verse 16, as for all who walk by this rule, peace be and mercy be upon them. That is the church being described in this view. And then this last clause, and upon the Israel of God, is actually unbelieving Israel that, that Paul still... You know he can't let go of his of his ties to national Israel, so he has to wish them a parting greeting of peace and mercy upon them, right? Even though they don't believe in Jesus, please, Lord, have peace and mercy upon them, nevertheless, because we know that um, he's going to uh, continue to pray for them when we read through when we get to Romans chapter nine, just like we read in our in our uh, uh, notes here. So. Even those who hold to this bilateral ecclesiology view that believe that this verse is describing two distinct separate people groups separated by this Greek word, uh, sorry, this Greek word chi, which is rendered and in our English, they believe that nevertheless, um, these are the two separate groups. All right. I, however, don't hold to that bi bilateral ecclesiology view. I think that instead, let's go back to our um, chart in Hebrew for Christians. Let's scroll back down to not the replacement theology view, not the separation theology view, but instead let's look at the remnant theology view. I believe that the term church describes a group of people that are connected to Israel through the term remnant. So in other words, there's a there's a, a chart on this page for uh, Hebrew for Christians that shows a circle to the right, a smaller circle, and to the left is a larger circle called Israel. And in, in this little chart here, this little description, this little graphic, the word church on the right, the circle, has an arrow drawn from the center of that circle pointing towards the left, moving towards the left, towards the larger circle called Israel, and landing inside of Israel and and ending up as a smaller circle called remnant inside of the bigger circle called Israel. So 
that the description is that the Gentile church partakes of the covenants and promises given to remnant Israel, and Gentile Christians must identify with remnant Israel. And uh, it's with that that we end up with the Venn diagram that we see. Uh, uh, if you want to Google search this, just type in um, remnant of Israel and then do the, the Google uh, image and you'll find this diagram. So basically we end up with two circles that overlap. And here's the description. Here's how, how I think is a good way to understand uh, what Paul means by the Israel of God when he says, peace be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Israel itself is a larger circle. The nations are also a larger circle that at one point in time were completely separate from Israel in that, in the sense that they are two separate identities. But the moment a person from Israel placed their genuine faith in God, which equaled genuine faith in Messiah, we don't know who that first person is. Some people say it might be Adam. Some people say it was Noah. But since they're not described as Israel, let's just jump forward, fast forward, and call that person Abraham. All right? Since he's the father of those who, des who are described in the Bible as circumcised, right? I'm borrowing my theology from Romans chapter 4. Let's just call Abraham the first saved Israelite using the description Israel and saved exclusively. Let's just call Papa Abraham, he's the first one. Well, at that moment then, he moved from the, 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 the portion of, of larger Israel known as the natural branches into a smaller portion still within Israel, but known as remnant. All right. At the same time, because he was already separated from the nations, God called him out in Genesis chapter 12, away from his homeland, away from the nations, and set him apart to become the father of a new separated people, right? A people separated from the nations, right? He'd already separated himself, so thus he became the father of the Israelites. Right of the of the Hebrews, or if we use an anachronistic term, he became the father of the Jews. Right again, go back to Romans chapter four to borrow all of the theology that I'm describing, and compare that with Romans chapter eleven, Romans four and Romans eleven. Both of those chapters will give you a kind of a snapshot of what I'm describing here by these two circles, this Venn diagram. Abraham belongs to the remnant, as do all believing Jewish people who were born within Israel from a natural lineage perspective. They're natural-born Israelites, but yet they come to faith in the Messiah of Israel. Thus, they move from being merely a natural Israelite into becoming a remnant Israelite. Yet, from a larger circle perspective, they still their identity is still Israel. Did I lose anyone? All right, now, it's with that understanding that we have to describe the Gentiles who also place their faith in Messiah, they don't stay outside of Israel as a separate entity like the replacement theology and the separation theology and the bilateral ecclesiology views describe. I don't think that's it at all. Based on what Paul describes in both uh, in passages such as Romans chapter 11, specifically verse 26, according to this diagram, Romans chapter 9, verse 27, as well as uh, 9, 11, 4 through 5, and not, uh, I'm sorry, um, Romans 11, 4 through 5, Romans 11, 25, uh, Romans 11, 17, uh, Ephesians 2, 12. You can stop my recording and go back and look up these references uh, in case you need to. I think that what Paul describes in his writings is the understanding that the Gentiles who have come to faith the Messiah actually 
get grafted into Israel on the larger scale, but specifically remnant Israel on the smaller scale, on the micro. So on the macro, they belong to Israel proper, right? The larger circle known as Israel. Gentiles who believe in Jesus actually belong to Israel on the larger scale, but specifically on the smaller scale, they belong to remnant Israel. So if we were to describe this in language of the olive tree that Paul describes in Romans 11, if the, instead of in other words, if we move away from the circles and describe a tree, the tree is the visible covenant people of God that we read about in the Bible that um, includes Abraham, the patriarchs, um, Moses, the children of Israel, anyone and anyone else who um, would name the name of Israel. That's the olive tree of Israel, I believe. That in other words, the olive tree is the, the the people of Israel in any given age at any given time. I believe that's the olive tree that Paul describes in Romans 11. And the root, I believe, is not Jesus. On the, on the larger scale, the root, I believe, is the patriarchs and the covenants that God spelled out to the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel, and the covenants that God made with them, and the promises and the blessings that God spelled out to the patriarchs. Right? Um, I believe all of that is infused in what we, what Paul would describe as the root of this olive tree known as Israel. It's, it's the part that supports uh, the heritage of Israel. The people group of known as Israel are supported by the promises that God made to Abraham. So therefore, I believe that the root is the patriarchs as well as the covenants made to the patriarchs. Make sense? Now, some Christians will say, no, Ariel, the root is Jesus, right? He's the root of the offspring of, of Jesse. He's the root uh, of David, things like that. Yes, that's true. He is, he is the root in that sense, but... And he is the root that supports Israel, but but he's the he's the quintessential um, uh, uh, true root. But that's on a smaller scale, meaning he's the central portion of the root. In other words, he's the remnant root. He's the he's the 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 um, the focal point of even the larger part of the roots. In other words, the 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 the, the patriarchs as they place their faith in genuine place faith in God like Abraham did actually get connected to the to the the source of their um strength and their faith which is Yeshua so yes he is the root within the root so if i were to go within paul's analogy just a little bit deeper all right, we're about 10 minutes over the hour, but if those of you who are with me in the live class will permit me to continue to explain this, since this is the final class, I'm going to go just a little bit over tonight. Um, so, basically, using the olive tree metaphor to uh, to fill in our understanding of what perhaps Paul had in mind when he wrote and upon the Israel of God in uh, Galatians 6.16, um, we've got uh, olive tree Israel, the root being the patriarchs and the and the covenants, and of course at the very center of that root of the patriarchs and the covenants is Yeshua and the promises that he upholds himself. So um, I think that's the root, and then as we move up the tree, move up into the history of Israel as a people group, suddenly uh, God brings in these wild olive branches from the world, right? These would represent people from the nations who gravitate towards Israel. And the grafting and branches, in my understanding, represent people who move into a relationship with Israel either on a natural level via conversion or and or people who move into Israel on a spiritual, eternal level via their faith in Messiah. Both of them work, right? Because um, 
Paul talks about how that branches can get broken off. And he's talking about branches that are part of Israel that get broken off. Meaning, um, it doesn't matter if you... Uh, uh, it doesn't matter per se if you're Jewish or Gentile. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to get broken off is the point I'm trying to make. Just because you belong to Israel doesn't guarantee that you're not going to get broken off. Because indeed, if Paul says, if you don't continue in your faith, you will get broken off. So we normally think of that as referring to natural Jews who, who are getting broken off. And that is true. That's the first application of the broken off principle that was, Paul would speak about in Romans chapter 11. But Gentiles who converted to become Jews in that day put themselves in a position, if they don't believe in Jesus, of also being broken off. Makes sense. Also, Gentiles who associate with Israel in Paul's day, but didn't go on to graduate towards final faith in Messiah, they too would actually be broken off in the final day because they never actually attained the, the faith that Abraham had in the promised word to come. So, again, uh, whether we're using the olive tree theology of Romans 11 or we're using these two circles, we come up with the same basic theology, that there's this section in the middle known as the remnant, meaning the Israel within Israel, or the uh, the um, the grafted in branches within the larger branches, to use that analogy. And therefore, because there's an Israel within Israel, here's what I think Paul is talking about. Going back to this passage where he says, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I think, first of all, it's uh, we can agree with verse six, the first clause of verse 16 with most Christian commentaries that the peace and mercy be upon them, the them, it refers to those who walk by this rule, meaning it refers to the remnant of Israel. They, like Paul, who have accepted Yeshua as their final authority on matters related to righteousness, etc., etc., atonement, forgiveness, salvation. This is the this is the Israel within Israel that Paul identifies with. This is the Israel that walks by the rule because they're not hung up on their ethnicity. That's why the, the peace and mercy can be upon them because they walk by the rule that Paul just described in verse 16, in verse 15 of um, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's the Israel within Israel, the remnant of Israel, because they walk by that rule. However, I think that Paul, still knowing that the remnant of Israel, and I'm going to borrow a little bit of theology from Romans again, even though we're in the book of Galatians, so please don't misunderstand my anachronistic use of Romans to explain Galatians, all right? I'm just doing this for our sake since we have both books in view. Even though I realize historically the Galatians at the time didn't have the book of Romans and they weren't probably able to put together what I'm about to explain to you unless Paul explained it to them. Nevertheless, we know from reading the book of Romans that Paul, particularly in chapter 11, that Paul, before he explains his olive tree theology, he talks about how that if the um, if the, the the if the lump is is set aside, let me just turn to it because I don't I don't want to butcher it. Uh, give me a second. Let's pull up. Give me a moment uh, for those of you in the class. I'm looking up Romans chapter uh, eleven, starting in verse sixteen. Um, Paul says, "If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." This concept of dough offering as first fruits and root. Holy for the branches. The the comparison of the of the 
uh, small to the big, the comparison of the of the of the um, remnant to the larger, is how Paul begins to introduce this section of the um, uh, on the olive tree theology. Um, I believe that what Paul understands is that uh, if we if you understand the theology behind the uh, the dough offered as first fruits. Uh, just basically, if you understand the theology of a starter lump of dough, a, a starter piece of dough that when included into a larger piece of dough, if you have a starter piece uh, that is leavened and you in, and you include it into a larger piece of dough that's not leavened, then as you work it, the leaven permeates and works its way into the whole lump of dough. And indeed, uh, the 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 uh, the theology behind this biblical uh, example here that Paul's using the the, uh, the first fruits is that. In the, in the Torah, in the time of the Torah, the first fruits offering was represented a smaller first offering that would represent a larger harvest of the whole. So that it's not that that what that the smaller piece gets offered and the larger piece gets destroyed. No, it's not that at all. It's actually that the smaller part is offered in advance with the expectation or the the understanding that the 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 the, the remaining part would later on also follow the smaller part you understand what I mean by that so uh, in other words um, Lord the smaller part represents that the, the reality that all of it will actually be yours one day and so p- within locked within Paul's mind of this the olive tree theology and the remnant theology and things like that, Paul surely understands that one day all Israel will come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah. We know this explicitly because he says it right down here in um, uh, 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 Romans chapter 11, uh, verse um, 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, right? So we know that one day uh, God will bring all of visible Israel to the position of knowing and believing and confessing faith in Messiah. And it's the dough offered as first fruits, meaning the remnant is the dough that's offered as first fruits because they are holy. So the whole lump eventually, eschatologically, will also become holy. And in fact, even now, but yet not, right? Now, but not yet, they are set apart, but we just don't realize it yet. So, so if the whole, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, right? The root being Yeshua is holy. The root being Abraham, the patriarchs is holy. Then eventually, God's promise to Abraham is that one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Eventually, Abraham, your offspring will be brought into this covenant. Eventually, as Paul looks forward into the future, uh, the prophetic view of Israel is that one day they too will profess faith in Messiah. Thus, Paul can say, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So, using the, that picture, uh, the remnant is the is it represents the root in that in that sense the re, the remnant represents the um the dough offered as first fruits right the, the, for now it's just a smaller remnant but someday it will be a, it will permeate the whole uh the whole of Israel in other words the remnant is not designed to just stay small it's designed to overtake the natural branches and and one day the whole tree will be holy that's the point that Paul's trying to get across if you read down through the rest of the book of Romans. And that's the view that he has, uh, that he wants to explain to the readers in Romans. Of course, again, the, the Galatians would, have been, would not have been privy to this expanded um, theological explanation in their letter, but we know that this is probably inside the mind of Paul. So that's why we're, we're anachronistically borrowing it for the moment in our study in the book of Galatians, if you guys will permit me to do so. 
So I believe that in explaining this phrase, uh, the Israel of God, uh, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God, we have kind of a dual meaning going on. On the on the smaller level, the Israel of God must represent those who walk by this rule, those who enjoy the peace and mercy upon them, because the Israel of God is actually the Israel within Israel, the remnant Israel, who for them neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, a new creation describes um, those who walk by this rule, but also a new creation describes the Israel of God, the Israel within Israel, the remnant of Israel. That is the new creation, the Israel of God. That's on a smaller level. That's on a remnant level. That's on the on the, uh, the micro. But I believe that since Paul still has Israel in view, he has not written off Israel. Paul, I don't believe, holds to it, doesn't hold to a bilateral ecclesiology because the remnant of Israel exists within greater Israel or national Israel or larger Israel because the remnant branches actually exist on the same tree as the other branches. They're still part of the same tree, right? Re- uh, replacement theology, separation theology, bilateral ecclesiology would basically hold that the grafted branches exist on a different tree somewhere called the church and that Israel has been left alone to her own tree to kind of dry up and wither away because they failed to believe in Jesus. That's kind of according to the bilateral ecclesiology view. Although I believe the the dispensationalists come along and say that later on God redeems Israel once again after he raptures uh, the church, takes them to heaven, then he turns once again to Israel and saves her using some different form of salvation or something that affects, something that kind of spins off into some weird theology, in my opinion. But germane to our study here in the book of Galatians is the remnant is describing those who walk by this rule, those who are the Israel of God, the Israel within the Israel, right? The remnant Israel within larger Israel. But at the same, by the same vein, by the same token, Paul doesn't want to create, in my opinion, a theology that would give rise to what is later described as bilateral ecclesiology. So for that, for that reason, the Israel of God still includes Israel proper, greater Israel. National Israel is also the Israel of God. So, in my opinion, he's doing double duty with this phrase, the Israel of God. In a smaller sense, it's remnant Israel because they are the only ones right now who walk according to the rule of neither circumcision counting for anything nor uncircumcision, but are a new creation. They are the remnant Israel for now, but... In Paul's mind, he knows that after reading through the prophets, after reading through the books of Ezekiel, particularly chapter 36, uh, where God one day will um, um, bring Israel to a saving knowledge of himself, namely faith in Messiah, because of the circumcision of the heart that corporate Israel will enjoy one day. We've read that in our liturgy. Go back and read Ezekiel 36. Uh, drop down to around verse 25, 26, 27, somewhere around there. Compare that with the Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 passage that most of you are familiar with that has been repeated in uh, Romans chapter, I'm sorry, that has been repeated in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 as well as Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, it's the passage that brings in the verbiage of the new covenant, the new uh, uh, testament or whatever, the new covenant that God makes with Israel in the house of Judah, where he places the Torah on their inward parts, right? All of those prophecies lead Paul. I'm drawing this to a close. We're almost done. We'll be done in about five minutes here. All of this leads Paul to the conclusion that, yes, there is a remnant of Israel, but they are not the end. 
The remnant is not the final say. The remnant of Israel, the church, is not separated from Israel so that God is done with Israel. The remnant of Israel is not separated from Israel, and then the church grows on her own while while greater national Israel kind of withers away and ceases to grow. That's not it at all. Actually, in Paul's mind, remnant Israel actually in the end of days by God's power and by God's strength, not by anything that she does on her own, remnant Israel by the power of the Spirit, actually continues to grow and grow and grow until remnant Israel actually overtakes, uh, percentage-wise, the natural branches, the, the, the remnant branches that are grafted in, actually overtake, and eventually one day God will recognize that all Israel shall be saved. Again, there's that Romans uh, chapter 11, uh, 26 verse again. And eventually, uh, corporate Israel will enjoy the new heart that is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 36. And she'll have the Torah written on her heart, just like Jeremiah mentions in his prophecy in chapter 31. So it is the eschatological Israel, the Israel of the final days, that is also in Paul's mind when he wrote the Israel of God. Guys understanding what I mean by that? So that's a lot to pack into just a few words, right? And upon the Israel of God. Again, Paul doesn't do any of those that unpacking here in the book of Galatians. And so um, we do ourselves a disservice into thinking that the Galatians were probably being given this, this eschatological view of Israel to, that would include both the remnant of Israel today as well as the eschatological, eschatological Israel of the future uh, where remnant Israel grows so large that she is actually no longer a remnant right? Percentage-wise, she's the greater, and the remnants are those who don't believe in Jesus. Um, But we know that that's what the Scripture's working towards. So uh, what I'm leaving you with is this, as I close my commentary to the book of Galatians, and indeed, this is my final commentary uh, to this study as well, and then I'm going to make a plug for where we're going to go next. So so those of you who are listening, uh, keep listening. I believe that uh, the book of Galatians is a book of belonging, a book of identity, a book of finding yourself in God's economy. And basically, um, if we, as we read through the Bible, we encounter a man who, a man known as Abraham, who eventually grows to become a family, who eventually grows to become a people known as Israel. And by the time we get to the New Testament and Paul, the Gentiles have recognized, even those who aren't um, religious, begin to recognize that there's a people that exists on the earth today that enjoys a special relationship with God. And that is the people known as Israel. And no other people group enjoys this status. There is only one elect of God, and that is Israel. And therefore, the Gentiles of Paul's day eventually begin to realize that if we want to get in on this program, if we want to inherit these blessings, if we want to be blessed by God, if we want to be counted as righteous, if we want to to um, have a... Uh, a, a um, a chance to inherit the blessings in the world to come. If we want to have a chance to even become saved, then we too have to, what? Identify with this people known as Israel. So the book of Galatians is really a book about identity. Who are you in God's eyes? Do you belong to Israel? Are you included in Israel in some way, shape, or fashion? Do you identify with Israel in some way, shape, or fashion? So, Paul recognizing that this is a central theology and and a a central sociological need of his day pens the book of Galatians because the Judaizers slash influencers are describing that belonging, right, belonging to that people of God is done by changing one's ethnicity from Gentile to Jewish. 
and then subsequently maintenancing that membership by keeping the Torah. So you get into the members-only club by becoming a Jew or by being born a Jew, and then you remain in the members-only club by steering clear of idolatry and uh, breaking commandments, and a word, keeping Torah. So, So ethnicity gets you in, and Torah keeping Torah keeps you in. So it's it, it's the same verbiage that E.P. Sanders described in uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism in 1977. Paul's getting and staying in language is is really primary to understanding um, uh, the Book of Galatians and indeed much of Paul's theology. This idea of getting in and staying in. So that's what we call covenantal nomism: getting in and staying in. Right? The idea of what, what is the motive behind why we do what we do? Why do we keep Torah? Why are we Jewish? Why do we circumcise our baby boys? It's because we want to get in and we want to stay in. And again, this is important because I believe it describes covenantal nomism in the language of not wielding Torah to get in, but wielding Torah or using Torah or utilizing Torah to stay in. A very, very important distinction from the way Christians describe uh, the, the utilization of Torah in the first century from their uh, theological perspective. Most Christians believe that the Jews of Paul's day were utilizing Torah to get in. I don't think that's what they were doing. I think the majority of Jews were utilizing Torah to stay in, meaning they felt that they got in when they were born, when they were circumcised, when they were, uh, when they were young, when they were babies. So it's with that understanding that Paul can now introduce a new messianic Covenantal nomism. That's right. Paul has his own covenantal nomism for the remnant Israel. And what is our covenantal nomism as remnant Israelites, both Jews and Gentiles, who profess the name of God as uh, uh, co-equals as fellow heirs within the commonwealth of Israel? What is our covenantal nomism? Well, it's this. Covenantal nomism is the description of getting in and staying in. In our messianic covenantal nomism, as com- contrasted to the the um, the traditional uh, nationalistic view of covenantal nomism, our covenantal nomism is quite simple. We get in to the remnant of Israel by Messiah, and we stay in the remnant of Israel by Messiah. Do you get it? It's quite simple. Jesus gets us in. Jesus keeps us in. We begin by the Spirit. We remain by the Spirit. In fact, Paul uses that verbiage in Galatians as well. He says, uh, having begun by the Spirit, are you so foolish that you're going to be perfected by the flesh? I think it's in uh, Galatians chapter... um, I think it's chapter 3 or 4. Give me a moment. I want to turn to it. Uh, yep, it's chapter 3. Uh, Galatians, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, is before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. There's our Jesus-centric covenantal nomism. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or hearing by the faith? In other words, did you get in to the group by your by self-effort and uh, your ethnic identity? Or did you get in and receive the Spirit by, by God's uh, uh, divine work, which would be, of course, be receiving the Spirit. Now, notice this next verse, verse three. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? There's our covenantal nomism of getting in. Having begun by the Spirit, we are. This is the remnant Israelites' uh, getting in principle. We begin by the Spirit. Are you now being perfected? That's our staying in by the flesh. Well, of course, Paul's answer is that no, we don't get in and stay in by the flesh. We don't get in by ethnicity and stay in by Torah observance. Our covenantal nomism is different. Our covenantal nomism as Messianics, both Jews and Gentiles, the remnant of Israel, is that we begin by the Spirit, there's our faith in Messiah, and we're being perfected as that as we stay in 
by the same means, by the Spirit, by our faith in Messiah, by maintaining our faith in Messiah, by him being upheld by the, 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 the strength and the obedience of Messiah himself. Of course, Torah obedience is, is in there, so we're not negating Torah obedience as Messianic believers. It's just that, that our, our Torah obedience doesn't maintain our position within Israel. Our Torah obedience is uh, our growth. Our Torah obedience is, is simply that. It's just obedience. Uh, it's our it's our demonstration of our of our fidelity to God as our God and our love for our neighbor, love for God and love for neighbor. Right, the two greatest commandments. That is our Torah observance, and that's our motive for an empowerment for doing the Torah. We're empowered by the Spirit to keep the Torah, and our motive for keeping the Torah as remnant Israelites is not to maintain our position in Israel like the nationalistic version of covenantal nomism. Rather, our motivation as remnant Israelites for keeping the Torah in contrast distinction to theirs uh, is that it is motivated by the Spirit of God within us who urges us on to be both pleasing to God and to be servants to those around us. That is to say, loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So our Torah obedience is, is motivated by God, by love for God and neighbor, and empowered by God himself. And that's the ingredient that's different than a national Israelites. But Again, in closing, I don't want us to get confused. Uh, the, the, uh, the Israel of God that Paul sees is, for now, the remnant. But one day this, this Israel of God is going to grow and overtake the other branches, and eventually all Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean every single Israelite, but it does mean percentage-wise, all Israel will be um, uh, characterist, characteristically uh, believing in God, at least as we move into the millennium, when things are flip-flopped, right? Um, the, the identity of Israel will be that, the, the, what, is the, the, what did the prophets say? Righteousness will cover the earth like the waters cover, uh, right, righteousness will cover the earth like the, wa- like the seas cover the earth, like the waters cover the earth now. Um, in other words, uh, the percentage will be different if we were to say the remnant is the smaller part and natural branches are the larger part. In other words, unbelief is larger than, than belief right now. Well, in the millennium, in the age to come, it's going to be flip-flop. Belief will be larger than unbelief. Omain, omain. And that's that's the eschatological, eschatological Israel that we belong to now and yet one day we'll also move into as the remnant Israelites. So, anyone misunderstand what I had to say? All right. I said a lot. I went 30 minutes over. For those of you who are with me in the live class, I appreciate this. Thank you for letting me um, uh, uh, share my heart with you uh, in this study. Um, Let me just give a final plug for what's going to be happening next. If I pull up my calendar, we're done with the study, by the way, and we're going to dismiss in prayer in a moment. Today is basically the 24th for most of you listening to this commentary, for those of you live class right now. Today is the 24th of February. We're done with Galatians. This is it. Week 93. We're done. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a break for the next week or so. This will give me a chance to do some logistics. I'm going to retire the Galatians um, newsletter. So those of you who are members of the (laughs) the Galatians newsletter, uh, your names will be taken off that list. What's going to happen, though, is I want to give a plug for what we're going to do uh, starting in February the 10th. We're going to take a break for a week because Purim is coming up next week. Purim is the first, right around the 1st of, of March. And so we're going to take a break, and we won't be meeting on the 3rd of um, March or anything like that. But beginning the 10th of March, let me just give a plug for those of you listening, we're going to turn 
towards my uh, Q&A series known as uh, Short Questions and Short Answers, which is a feature that's available on my website at tatesidetor.com. Questions and answers will allow us to basically tackle a new topic each week. It'll be a similar format as this. We'll be live, we'll be Skype, uh, we'll have screen sharing, we'll probably do a little bit of liturgy or something like that. Each class will probably be about an hour long or less. But the thing that will be different is that each topic should be different every night. We're just going to tackle a new question each night. These are questions that I have answered on the ebible.com forum. The questions were sent in by Christians and, and others, and the answers are done by eBible uh, forum members, of which I'm one. I think I'm the only Messianic um, forum member there. As far as I can tell, I'm the only Messianic, meaning holds to uh, the view that Torah is relevant for Christians and Jews today. The others are, are hold to a traditional Christian view, and uh, you're welcome to read all of their uh, answers out at eBible.com, E-B-I-B-L-E.com. So, I answer questions there. The questions belong to the eBible forum, but the answers belong to me. So I wrote my own answers. They're short answers, usually about a paragraph or two. Certainly enough information for us to cover in the hour live class. And I've got enough material to go for more than a year, easily probably a year and a half or two years. We'll see what the Lord leads me into doing. And I don't think we're going to be needing to take any 10-week on, 2-week off breaks during this type of format. Since each question is unique, we'll just go straight through. We won't take any breaks between any weeks. So come on out Saturday evenings, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, right here, same bat time, same bat channel, right? Come on out to uh, uh, tastytour.com. I'm going to put some information in the weekly Messianic newsletter so that all of you who are members of the... um, weekly messianic newsletter will be able to follow along you're instantly subscribed uh, to the new uh, study and you'll have an opportunity to join us live during skype okay anyone have any questions send me an email all right go to my website tatesatora.com scroll down to the very bottom click on the link that or the uh, icon that looks like an envelope shoot me an email let's close in prayer i'll bless your name and thank you for the study to the book of galatians lord what an awesome uh, book that we have before us, Paul's letter to the Galatians, the information that's contained, the relevance of the information as it pertains to Jews and Gentiles in the Messianic communities, as well as Jews and Gentiles in uh, what is described as traditional Christianity. Uh, Lord, we know for the most part that unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles are probably not reading the book of Galatians. They're probably not interested in the in the New Testament. But to the extent that those who name the name of Jesus as Lord, read through the book of Galatians. Lord, may we seek to better uh, understand what Paul is explaining to us. May we um, continue to press in for growth. May we not be satisfied with um, where we're at uh, as far as our walk in Messiah, but let us seek to continue uh, like the like the Bible enjoins us to do, to to grow in grace, to continue to to grow in our walk, um, to 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 um, mature in our faith, uh, to become stronger, so that we can be um, used more mightily in Your kingdom and for Your purposes. Thank you, Father, for saving us and not, and and filling us with your Holy Spirit, for setting us on a sure foundation, uh, for setting us on the rock whose name is Messiah, for giving us the armor of Ephesians so that we can uh, resist the devil and we can uh, uh, not be uh, casualties in these battles that we fight against the principalities. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you've given us 
Messianic communities so that we can find support in times of need, in times of prayer, in times of healing. Uh, uh, thank you that uh, you have allowed us to come together uh, via the medium known as the Internet. Lord, I pray blessings to all of the students who have joined me in the live class as well as the students who were able to listen along via the audio podcast. Uh, thank you, Lord. I pray that you'll um, bless us as we move into Purim next week. Uh, help us to continue to uh, make relevant the truths that we're going to be studying about as we read through the book of, of Esther and, and pour through the material there and uh, reflect on the historic reality of, of what Purim has to offer for us as a people of God. Uh, even if we're not Jews, let us read through the book of Esther and understand that this is the Israel of God. This is God's people that one day will 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 see and understand that Jesus is Lord. Uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, we can meet again uh, and uh, pray that you'll bless the, the upcoming study uh, and, and may it reach many, many peoples. We'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.